mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Dr. Mike Isretel, welcome to American Glutton Podcast. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. By the way, this is the first time we've done it while we're in the same room. We're not on phones, which is really nice. <laughs> we've done it over the phone more yeah. than a handful of yeah. times. Yeah, mm. which is kind of creepy the way you're saying mm. it. Exactly. Um, I really wanted to talk to you about two things today. And one is I just had this idea hit me and I wanted to ask you about it for anyone who's considering massive weight loss. It's probably a bad idea. Right. Don't do that. <laughs> How jacked would I have been had I gotten on the program I'm on now when I weighed 550 pounds? Mm. That's a good question. Can I give a caveat to that? Before? Of course. Yes. Listen, I don't know what I'm talking about, really. Me neither. Yeah. This is like cool hypothetical stuff. And sure. It gets the brain going. And for people that are currently in the heavier body weights, it's probably good for them to hear this. But uh, there's a big caveat to like, I wouldn't worry about that a ton if I was in your position or other folks that have lost a considerable amount of weight because, you know, we don't have time machines and regaining the 500 is not a really good no. option. Yeah. So just, just throwing that out there that like, you know, okay, bygones are bygones. So there's one big factor that has to be mentioned is age. Your ability to gain new muscle tissue is better when you're younger. So when you were in your 20s, if you had started lifting then when you were already quite heavy – and you had continued to lift through your 20s and through your 30s, you would be considerably more jacked than you could ever hope to achieve now that you're in your uh, later years. Right. right. <laughs> a senior citizen, so yes. to speak. Or a borderline, but <laughs> yes, run right at that door. <laughs> That's right. So, But in all seriousness, being able to train when you're in your age, technically it's age 15 to 
to age 40 is when the majority of your muscle mass gains can be made. But that's not to say that you can't make excellent gains in your 40s and 50s. You can. But there's just something with age there that has nothing to do with body weight whatsoever. That's a thing. Next up is if you trained with weights while you were at your heaviest and let's say that you were – let's say you were still 500 pounds plus and you're no longer super, super young. Would it be a good idea for you to train with weights while you're heavier and stay heavier? Uh, would it marginally gain you a little bit more muscle mass? Maybe a little bit, a little bit, but maybe not. And here's why. Maybe a little bit because you would never really truly be hypocaloric ever because you have so much body fat that it's like, no worries, fam, I can get this covered. So you just eat a high protein diet and that's good to go. Another reason is your lower body would consistently be uh, stimulated to an ex incredible extent and that the training would concomitantly not have to be as hard because Jesus Christ, just walking around or just doing bodyweight lunges or something, bodyweight squats, you'd be fucking getting jacked. Can I swear? Of course. Oh, sweet. No, too late. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, people that are very over fat, which is the technical term, they often suffer from an, an inability to push themselves very hard during training because it's like wearing a gigantic vest all over your whole body. I mean, like now you and I just did a, a workout together and you're a work machine. Like you can fucking train and you don't even really get out of breath a ton after, which is super impressive to me. Like, motherfucker, when you were 550, you sure as hell couldn't train like that. I mean, like walking up a flight of stairs is probably tough. So when you look at something like upper body training or something, good God, I mean, you would prefer to be smaller. So, you know, if you started training when you were younger, would that be great? Yes. If, when, if you could have started training a lot on your way down from 550 down to where you are now, that would have been sweet. But on the net balance, you can probably close most of those gaps significantly now in your state that you lost the weight and so on and so forth. Generally speaking, the reason that overweight people are also very muscular is one, they have huge loading all the time. And two, they a lot of times have very good genetics for muscle growth. They tend to be more faster twitch dominant than slower twitch, which is another reason why a lot of the uh, typical endurance recommendations given as exercise are just awful for them and they can't do them uh, because it's not just that they're so fat that it's difficult to carry the body weight around. It's also that their muscle fiber type is just not suited for that whatsoever. I mean, when Charlie was, uh, you know, at around like 7% body fat, he could barely do the elliptical for 15 minutes because he's so fast twitch dominant. His quads just cramp up. They just cramp up doing anything. And a lot of people that are very over fat have those similar types of genetics. They honestly, there's a problem where they think exercise just isn't for them, but they haven't been trying the right kind of exercise. If they do sets of five in the, in the compound heavy movements, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm good at this and I'm getting fucking good real fast. So that would be a really great thing. But those same people, once they lose the weight, they still have the same fiber types. They still have the same uh, number of satellite cells that can incorporate into the muscle to make it as big as it could ever be. So those are the type of people that even if they lose the weight, when they start regaining it in muscle, they just gain crazy amounts of muscle. Genetics are a trippy thing that but for the passage of time, whatever your genetics are for building muscle, whenever you get your shit together, you got the growth coming to you that's coming to you. And what I mean by that is this. If you have, let's say, a bottom 10% genetics for muscle growth, Man, there's just not a whole lot of poking in the in the in the coals you can do to get anything going. Like you can optimize everything, you'll grow some muscle. If you have excellent genetics, you could be like in your 50s and start lifting, and all of a sudden people are like, "What the hell happened to you? You're jacked." You're like, I guess that's what I did. There's a, a very very famous um, CrossFitter who is super big in RP, and she's been uh, a big friend of ours, and she's used our templates and coaching and stuff. 
Um, she's known as like the jacked grandma. She didn't even formally exercise to a high level up until she was in, I think, her late 40s or her early 50s or something. Wow. She just literally looked like a regular person. And then she started lifting weights and her body was like, Wah. and then all of a sudden she has like, no joke, like an eight pack and like just shredded traps, everything. And she wasn't like killing herself in the gym or crazy dieting. She was just eating well and training a lot and her body just like, wah. That could have happened anytime she ever tried it in her life. So the way muscle growth and genetics works, it's kind of like a litmus test. You try the weights, you try the food and you grow all the muscle you're kind of destined to. There's a discount there of time. Like if you start growing your muscle in your sixties, you're going to be as jacked as you sort of you know, maybe could have gotten in your 60s anyway. Maybe not quite as jacked because you didn't have time to build up all that muscle. But, you know, fundamentally being much heavier, much lighter doesn't have a ton to do with that muscle growth thing. Right. I, I also think about the muscle that I disposed of from dieting to in into a much deeper caloric deficit than I needed to, uh, not eating enough protein, not following any kind of like progressive overload templates. And, and I, I sometimes do have like certain regrets where I'm like, I sacrificed 20 pounds of muscle at some point. It's 20 pounds. You can get back. No problem. Right. The way muscle works is, uh, what is concept is known colloquially as muscle memory. Mm. Um, it seems to have a lot of support for it in the scientific literature that once your muscles get to a certain size, um, essentially you have these, uh, so muscle cell is generally stuff that makes the cell and the nucleus of the cell. And the nucleus is kind of the thing that sends instructions to everything else. It's kind of like like the downtown of a city, so to speak. And uh, let's say like Los Angeles as a city can only get so big because you can only have so many garbage truck depots and there's only one mayor can coordinate only so much. Like you can't have a mayor of California. That would be insane, right? right. So in, in essence, the nuclei or the control centers – and when your muscle cell gets big enough, it has its nuclei in it, at some point it stops growing because the distance between the nucleus and the outside of the cell is so big that it's almost like having a, a city that spans 100 miles. Like you just – there's no real-world communication that can, can bridge those gaps, right? So you need to just start forming new cities out there or something. So – just like cities that ex expand incorporate townships with their own little mini mayors and stuff, you have these these tiny little muscle cells on the outsides of your real muscle cells that work, that are attached to something. They're not attached to anything. There's these teeny little muscle cells that have almost no contractile apparatus, no machinery to make muscle actually move, but they have nuclei, a bunch of them. And they're just sitting there. They're called satellite cells. And they're sort of like dormant or quiescent or whatever. They're just like, meh. And when the cell next to it gets big enough, some signaling occurs. And then the nucleus actually enters that new cell. And it goes, hey, I've got all this regulatory machinery that I can help you run this new huge empire. And then the cell continues to grow and grow. When you do that, let's say just being gigantic and weighing 550, you did that to your calves. Okay, yeah. A lot of times where you were growing from 350, 450, and your muscles are getting so big that they're like, hey, satellite cells, get in here. We need the help. The thing about satellite cells is they seem to either never leave or very, very rarely leave or to a small extent. So when your calves shrink back down, when you weigh 200 pounds again, they have tons of nuclei within them and some decent contractile machinery. The thing is, how much nucleus you have per given volume of cell hugely determines 
how fast you can expand because then essentially like when you train muscle, there's all kinds of different responses and a bunch of them come out of the nucleus. So the message for grow, grow, grow is going to be enormous when you have tons of nuclei. And so if your muscles shrink because there's not a lot of the muscle muscle left, but the nuclei remain, as soon as you start training with the weights again, oh my God, you're essentially for that moment of time have elite genetics and your calves can get just enormous right away. And this is what we tend to see with people that have been muscular before and let's say get hurt. And this happens all the time in bodybuilding and all kinds of other sports. You get these huge quads and then you, you literally like sever a tendon, you're in a car accident, you fuck up your knee and the leg is immobile for like four months. And then literally people take pictures of their legs and it's like this little string. It's like, holy shit. Like, like the Roswell alien dissection video yes. where you're like, ah, I don't know if that alien walking around his own power. So in any case, you see that and you're like, dude, this guy took him 20 years to build his legs up to this. And he and literally, he, he started at a leg just as a teenager, bigger than what he has now. So like, if you were just using just sort of just callous reasoning, you would be like, it's 25 years later, he's going to have the same size leg. Right. And basically if he's out for like three months and his leg gets tiny, about six months later, you can barely tell the difference between the two legs. I watched this in a movie um, and I don't know any of these people's names, but he's an Australian dude. Looks incredible. Hugh Jackman. No, looks way better. That's the than only Hugh incredible Australian. This I is know. a bodybuilder and he tore his body. Callum Von Moger. Yes, I think that's him. Mm. And it hurt my soul to watch his arm deflate and get smaller. And that's what I assumed. I was like, well, he's done. He, cause he's going to sure. take years and years. And then I blinked and he looked the same as prior to the injury, yep. which yep. stunned me. And I didn't really understand it, but yep. it, that makes more sense. Yep. now. And the satellite cells are there ready and waiting. And they'll, one interesting thing, and I have a series of recommendations on and various sources about how to come back from injury. One thing we really try to get through people's heads is try to build up the number of reps you can do first and well, the range of motion first, then the number of reps and then slowly add weight to the bar because your ability is going to come back so rapidly for the muscle that it can outpace the tendon and the connective tissues and get you hurt again too fast. Right. Like the problem is you regain muscle too quickly for your body, not too slowly. And people always worry about this. They're like, oh man, like my one leg, I hurt it and it's a little smaller. What do I do? Like just start training it normally. It will come back. And it's hard to believe like yourself when you say these, these things, I've been hurt and I'm like, fuck, I'm gone forever. And then three months later, I'm like my all time biggest. I'm like, what the hell is going on? It's a thing. It's totally a thing, which is great because then you don't have to worry about missed time and lost opportunities. Another really cool thing. And, and Eastern sports scientists have known this for a while. Athletes can get to a real high peak in a variety of their abilities, stop training at a high level for literally months. And then re-peak again months later and win the Olympics. Right. There is uh, an element to American sport practice that's decaying now, which is good. But back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Americans just trained like twice as much as everyone all the time. Because there was a, this idea of like if you ever backed off, you were losing. And that's just not true. So a lot of like the Russian powerlifters I've interacted with after a big competition, they'll go to like Europe and just travel around for like – six weeks. And I'm like, what do you guys do for gyms? They're like, gyms? I'm like, what do you guys do for food? They're like, food? Like, they just live as regular people. Right. And you think like, oh my, and you've seen like some of them do seminars when they're in that state and they, there's like, you know, wide-eyed Americans are waiting for these Russian monsters they've seen on video and the guy shows up and like, what the, what the fuck? Like one guy told me, he's like, that guy looks like an accountant. <laughs> he did what with a barbell? Right. And, the, and like, they just back off because they know it's coming back. Right. And then this guy later, the, specifically the accountant guy did a meet eight months after that broke all time world record, like three times. You're just like, 
huh, it's a thing. Right. And we have to understand that. And this is also great too, because if people have a time when they're hurt or a time when they have a quarantine times, they couldn't train. And they could, dude, I lost years of gains. Nah. Yeah, sure. You lost years of gains. That will take you weeks or months to get back. Right. Also, sorry, real quick. Yeah, no, I love this is fantastic because well, let's talk about that. That sure. was a, a, a point of anxiety, sure. deep anxiety sure. for me. To, to end that specific rant, uh, the great thing about taking some time off is twofold at least, at least. Onefold is your connective tissues heal in a way that they never would if you were continuously banging on them. You're fresh at a very deep level if you take two months off. And two is the psychological benefit of being so fresh. I mean, I think some people earlier in their motivational stages think that if they stop doing the thing that they like, they're just going to hate it when they come back. Uh, that's true for people just starting out. So like if you started out training in February, that sucks. Right. You're going to have to restart fresh. Yeah. But if you have been training for months and months or years and years – that you're not going to quit training because of a quarantine. And even if you quit during the quarantine, when you come back, it'll feel like this revival of new life. And it's a great thing. And sometimes we train so much and we have our identity and our schedule such that we just train and train and train and we don't just see red all the time and just train. Sometimes you can get to a place psychologically where people are like, do you, you like training, right? And you're like, do I? Right. There used to be this concept of a me that liked training, but not just an automaton. I just go... A couple of months away from the gym, first of all, you can enjoy new experiences and just fucking for the love of God, watch Netflix and just enjoy your family. And then after the gym's open and all that shit, you can come back and just rediscover how much you really love the gym again. And that can be something like a wellspring of, of, uh, of motivation that takes you through another multiple years of training even. So that's a thing. Right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Yeah, that's great. I, I never even thought of it that way. I just have, you know, I rationalize all this thinking about my past and my my bouts with addiction and all the stuff that I thought about doing 30 years ago that I couldn't get myself to do that now that I'm doing it, I do think in terms of inertia. And if we blunt that inertia, then the, the ability to get it going again seems insurmountable to me. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I wound up not having that experience. I, I wound up That's awesome. like definitely not being as fit as I was going into quarantine. And now, uh, you know, much more fit a couple weeks after, you yep. know, or a month after. Yep. And quarantine's back in California and, sure. and, and I'm still somehow more fit. Like it's great. Yeah. So I didn't lose anything. Yeah. Inertia is an interesting concept. I think it's more often than not a fear people have than a reality. Yeah. I, I do encounter this a lot. Uh, it's interesting. I'm always very fascinated with personal psychology, and I, I rarely get to speak on it because it's not my primary area of expertise, and I guess I just know other shit better, so people want me to shut the fuck up about this and talk about other stuff. And a lot of it's really like kindergarten teachery kind of soft love kind of stuff, but I do believe that it is correct. And one of the things that I always try to – inculcate in folks that, that have requested this advice of me is the momentum stuff is cool. The inertia stuff is cool, but don't, don't you get too much in your head about coming back to something. And a lot of people say like, man, cause you know, like when they see someone jacked, they start talking to you. They're like, all of a sudden you're a priest and there's a confessional and they're like, man, I haven't been to the gym in three weeks. And I always have the same fucking stupid line. And I don't know if people take me seriously, think I'm fucking mocking them and I'm not. I'm like, well, that's okay. You should come back and just try a workout. And they're like, because mm. <laughs> they think I'm like, 
fucking pussy. Like, right. You don't belong with us anymore. Yeah. Like we're a fucking, you know, it's a 300 casting and you've got to fucking get sliced on your house. You know, like what the fuck? And people think like, I come back to the gym and people are going to judge me. Who, who the fuck is going to judge you? People are obsessed with themselves at the gym. Like nobody judges you. Also, nobody gives a shit if you're in and out of shape because nobody cares about you. Nobody keeps a mental tab of like, see that guy's back. He's out of shape. Like, and the people that do that, because they do exist, they're nuts people. You don't want to have anything. You don't care about, you know, like what would Hitler think about me? Like, right. I don't give a fuck. I hope he'd hate me. Yeah. You know, they reflect well on me. So it's one of these things where people have this anxiety about coming back to things. And the easiest thing in the world is to come back to something and just dabble in it a little bit. Like you don't have to come, like you're a swimmer. You don't have to come back to the pool and set a world record. Just dabble, just splash around in the water. And then when you feel like swimming again in a couple days, come back. And then pretty soon, because you're a fucking addict to swimming, because you're a fucking swimmer, you're going to be back in there five, six days a week, loving it. And you're going to see your performance start to coast up. And then three weeks later, you're going to be like, I am in the fucking groove. And I have no idea what the fuck I was ever afraid of. Yeah. People come back to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They're like, I suck. Of course you're going to suck on your first day. Just have fun. What are you trying to beat all the black belts on your first day? That's insane. And if you come back to a workout, I've been back to workouts with a lot of people who have spent time away and like either try to use the weights they used to or just when they use lighter weights to say, man, I'm off my best. Like, is there, is there cameras around here that are recording your life? This is like aliens are watching a game show about your life and like, yeah, Ethan Suplee's definitely off his fucking A game. The other aliens like, yeah, man, fuck, I always hated this character. What the what the fuck? These are people just in your head. Right. So just ease in and then one step after another. And look, like if you have a workout day one, you're back and you're like, that fucked me up and you're sore and you're tired and you're kind of like, oh, I didn't even want to go back to the gym. Don't. Spend a couple of days at home relaxing and resting. And then after a couple of days, let's be honest, you're going to be like, I feel like working out again. Yeah. And you'll go again. And you'll go again. And you'll, it just let that process naturally unfold. You don't have to like be like, all right, I'm going zero to 60. Like I'm uh, six days a week. Like what? That's not a big deal. It's also a really bad idea because if you ramp up your volume and intensity super fast, your chance of injury is incredibly high. Right. So just let yourself ease in. So anytime people talk about like, I've got this inertia for things I do and if it drops off, I'm going to be a fucking ghost of myself. Cool. You'll be a ghost. That's okay. Yeah. Like, okay. And then you'll just start doing what you think is a good idea again. Okay. And then you'll slowly do a little bit more because you like it. Like, okay. And then the momentum will be back. Okay. And then you're fucking golden and your momentum again. Right. I, 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 and, and as far as all of that goes, the somehow the getting sore, I, I love that after yeah. taking time off because it's something that once you are in it for a while kind of disappears. Sure. And then it's like, oh, that's a cool metric that I haven't, I haven't yeah, relied on. Yeah, for while. sure. And it's it, people are like, they'll use it as a bad. I swear to God, a lot of people bring things into such. I mean, this is like old like Buddhist tripe, but it's nonetheless true. What people bring into situations a lot of times is the is the problem and the solution. And the situation itself is an objectively very simple thing. And people often bring these toxic things into situations. Like toxic not in the sense of like, oh my God, in the sense of just like, eh, you could be thinking a little differently. And one of them is people like will value judge soreness as a bad thing. They'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sore. I'm like, oh, cool. And they're like, yeah, man, geez, I'm out of shape. I'm like, okay. What do you mean out of shape? You're in a different shape than you were. You're not in as good of shape, but you took three months off. No shit. Why is there ever a morality involved in that? Right. Like you're doing, there's nothing moral whatsoever. Can you imagine going up to like the, the Dalai Lama or the Pope and being like, hey man, I haven't worked out in a long time. What do you think is going to save my soul? They're like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, what? Right. Is working out code for like hurting people? They're like, no, just myself, bro. And they're like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Right. So like just ease in. And bring in with you 
psychologically, just the idea of like, I'm just going to have fun and try to do a little better. Yeah. I swear to God, if you just apply, I'm going to have fun and just try to do a little better, kill your clone just a little bit every day. At some point, you're just achieving 100% of what you're capable of without any of that hogwash bullshit like, I've got to do this or else, like, kill to win, fucking, you know, kill to eat. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no jungle. Nobody's in the jungle. Just do what you like and do a little bit better. That's it. Yeah. That's it's awesome. lame, though, to say that. But I, but, I, but I think it's so valuable because there's a lot – I think – and and I, I have experienced this with myself where I'm not doing something merely because I'm talking myself into not doing it, you know, which anything that I'm saying in my head is all bullshit most sure. of the time, you know, sure. until I'm actually convincing myself to do action. Action's real. Sure. My story in my head is just my story in my head. For sure. And people hold themselves to crazy standards with action. They're like, well, I'm not going to do anything unless I'm good at it. Right. How the fuck did you learn to walk, motherfucker? Because when you started walking, you sucked. You just don't remember. You're going to suck at everything you start. Yeah. Like when I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I was a decent high school wrestler by then. And that had been years before that. And then I was like really, really strong, like stronger than everyone I've ever rolled against jiu-jitsu except for one person, Chad Wesley Smith, who's one of the best powerlifters of all time. And so I was like thinking to myself, like, you know, like I'm going to lose a lot. And the first week of jiu-jitsu where I met a now colleague of mine, Dr. Jen Case from RP, and she was already a purple belt and I was a nothing belt. And in one six minute roll, she submitted me, I believe nine times. Right. And I mean, she's now a world champ and all that stuff. So I can be like, yeah, I lost to a girl, but it wasn't just any girl. It's Jen Case. That's true as far as it went. But all the other girls there could have fucking kicked my ass too. Yeah. It was kind of like, and people ask me after, like, how did it feel? I'm like, it felt like very cool to be in the presence of someone who's an expert fucking killer. It was just awesome. It was like, you imagine someone like tossing up a watermelon in the air and slicing it with a katana four times. Like, it was just, I was the watermelon. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just like cool to see. And like, you know, don't you feel like fucking weird about that? Like, why the fuck would I, how the fuck am I going to be good at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I've never done this shit before. I didn't even know how the rules work. So then what did I do? I like had some moments of frustration, of course, but then I just tried a little more, tried and did a little better and took a little time off and came back. And then now like, yeah, I'm out there, you know, I'm the guy who's annoying to people because I'm like difficult to submit and really strong and all that shit. I know technique. They didn't just get here. So it's, it's really easy to psych yourself the fuck out yeah. of just even trying stuff or coming back to stuff because you have set these standards, literally no one is watching. And that's the thing about like, I'm never going to do this because I freaking hate the idea, but like like a motivational speaker for teens or whatever, like I can't wait to have children of my own because I'm going to have all kinds of shit to say to my teens. And by all kinds of shit, I mean literally just one thing, like nobody gives a flying fuck. Can you imagine <laughs> how powerful that would be when we were, and you and I were teenagers yeah. and us to know that? When I was a teen, I remember this burden from everywhere of like everything matters, everyone's watching you everyone judges you nobody gives a shit and the people that give a shit are in a way worse boat than you are can you imagine like if your claim to fame is like you really follow other people and you care about like what the fuck yeah right no one cares and when you decide like i should really get back in shape should i take the swimming class at the jewish community center or will people laugh at me what the fuck is right you're 42 years old who's gonna laugh at you and if they are that's a psychotic individual that needs help you know what i mean like it doesn't just ease in and you'll be good to go i wish i knew that a long time ago i do too i mean it's that's a huge lesson and that is something i say to my teenage daughters all the time nobody cares it doesn't matter you know 
it, uh, it's it's one thing to get to a point in your life where you figure that out, and yeah. it's another thing to say it to somebody. And sure, teenage girls people used don't to tell it, it to me back when I was a kid. I didn't want to hear that stuff yeah. because I felt like it mattered. Right, uh, and you know, but eventually, as you grow up, you learn that that is not the case. Yeah, and a lot of the things that teens go through is supernatural and just have to go through it themselves. So it's not about sheltering people and be like, I just wish they didn't have to take the pain. Now, fuck that. Take the pain. It'll make you stronger. But to me, what I do is I have, I'm a really big fan of real talking people that can take it. Yeah. Uh, and when you are an adult, ostensibly you pay your taxes and you have a job and you sometimes even care for other people that are your children and you start to behave like a teen and you don't, and you try to rationalize it and you try to tell people like, well, yeah, but like, I mean, I don't know. I'm just scared. Like, what the fuck? Did your kids see the side of you? Grow up. Do what's right slowly, easy, and don't you worry about making mistakes. Just expose yourself to whatever it is you're doing. Fall, get up, fall, get up, fall, get up, and then you'll be awesome at it eventually. Or you just won't like it and just fucking quit. You know, right. like I'm not over here taking salsa dancing classes because I'm Jewish and I have no rhythm. Is that okay to say on this podcast? I think so. Sweet. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is awesome. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is maintenance. And I'm against it. I know. <laughs> I bring this up because I've done a lot of diets and I've not experienced maintenance in the way you lay it out in your book and with these principles. And mostly I'm talking about if you if you start and 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 I'm not really talking about people who need to lose ten pounds and are going to a diet to lose ten pounds because, you know, auto maintenance, right? I don't really care if that's what you need to lose. Sure, maybe I'm not the guy for you. I'm talking about for myself. I went from five fifty to now two fifty. That's a huge chunk, and. All of the diets that I did, any kind of maintenance was you've been eating 600 calories a day. Now we're going to bump you up to 1,800 and then you're done and the diet is over. That was kind of the view of maintenance. But there was never a – I never experienced like, hey, you've been dieting for a few months. Now we're going to chill your body out. And I think for me, there's so many psychological and physical benefits to doing that mm-hmm. that – how how are people missing this? When is the first time you experienced maintenance yourself? Was it did Jared, your RP coach, help you? Or? I, had, I had done maintenance prior to that, um, and it really was a radical thing. Like Jared, Jared has fine tuned everything, and and I actually was able to have more calories on maintenance eventually on Very his cool. version of maintenance, sure. which was surprising because it was this thing of like, hey, I'm I'm figuring out what you're telling me to eat. That's a lot of food. And he was like, it's okay. Yeah. You know, that's fine. And it was. Um, it's a funny complaint to have, right? It is a bizarre complaint to have. But, you know, it's the, like sure. I, I – You don't I, want to regain all the crazy weight. Wake yeah, up 550 tomorrow. Right, yeah. which is logically possible. Sure. Um, <laughs> tomorrow. I, so I just I, – I, I, I guess I wonder how this isn't being utilized – more frequently. And, and I wonder if it's because do you think people just want a straight line to the finish line, but there's so much failure involved in that. Yeah. It's a really good question. 
The answer is is pretty multifactorial. I think we could probably start at the demand side and work towards the supply side eventually. Okay. So on the demand side, this is something that um, there's no like real. I'll try to say this in the most politically correct way that I can, but uh, and that's not one of my talents. Right. So people are human. And humans, at the end of the day, we live in a free market economy. Thank fucking God. We don't live in North Korea. And people demand and what survives the competitive market process is what is supplied to them based on what they demand. Like if you had this brilliant idea that a cell phone should have the same functions but be three feet tall, that's nice. You can have all the rationalization in the world for why that's a good idea. Like you'll be able to lift this phone and it'll make you stronger and you can talk on it. So it's a fitness in a phone. <laughs> Forget your app. Right. Um, because people don't demand it. And in this case, it's a good idea. They don't because it's a stupid idea. It's not going to be supplied for very long. So in much the same way, there's a lot of demand side construction of the marketplace of dieting. And uh, the demand side is heavily tilted to the majority of people who want easy solutions fast. They want instant results and they are not very forward looking. People, a large fraction of people, human beings in the modern United States and Western world are just not very forward looking at all. Like if you get a loan from a bank, you have to go through a ton of paperwork just to make sure that legal authorities know you're not getting fucked over in a way that's very obvious that you would hopefully want to read about, but a lot of people don't. They just don't. So a lot of people have this very, very like uh, short temporal alley of viewing ahead and and they're like, uh, 15 pounds overweight, I need to get this weight off. And you could sit them down and say like, okay, now do you know that keeping the weight off is tough? And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. I just, I just need to lose the weight. And that's maybe the vast majority of all people who buy diet products. So when you look around and you, you see where, is these, where are these maintenance products, they're not around because most people just don't want them. There was a – I forget the vehicle. There was a vehicle marketed in the um, – I think in the 70s that was designed to be the, the very, very safe car. And it was – you know, its cost per car was more expensive because of all these features. It just fucking bombed because people didn't value their safety that much. And what do they value? Well, like, fucking people buy Corvettes, dude. Corvette's not a fucking safe car. It's a fucking death machine. But you know what I'm saying? It's fucking that, bro. It's right. red and shit. It's fast. That's what people fucking want, yeah. right? Like fast food isn't healthy for you, but it's a huge industry because people desire it. Just the same way all industries are like that. And the diet industry happens to be one in which, you know, people want short-term shit. So that's mostly what they get. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Second problem is that people that get into the dining industry on the supply side mostly just provide the people with what they want and thus there's not a lot of thought given to maintenance even by those people that are experts and could potentially give thought to it they're sort of like yeah that's nice but most people just aren't interested in that there's another problem where anytime you're selling a long-term thing you have this uh, attrition effect of people falling off the plan um, and it's tough because, you know, if you're selling something that brings fruition in months as a, or years as opposed to months, it's tough to rationalize an, a business model off of that sort of thing. And it's tough on both ends that most people don't want it. And most people don't even want to pay for something like a maintenance product of any kind because they're not so sure themselves that they're going to use it for that long. So... The, and, and those factors all compound to give us what we have today, which is there are numerous resources out there that teach you how to diet and uh, eat well for good after a diet. Tons. But numerically, there are tons. Fractionally, there are is it 1% of the industry. 99% is just lose weight now. And even the, you know, if you take that 99% of the industry that's lose weight now, maybe 10% of that is scientifically based how you should be losing weight now. And maybe 90% of it or whatever, 89 is like the most dog shit garbage way you could even try that shit. So the problem is even worse than we're talking about. Even the ways of losing weight are fucking terrible. Right. But fundamentally, I think that's where most of that comes from. Uh, it's at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's that that's what people want. Now, people want all types of stuff that's not a great idea for them. And the beautiful thing about people is that they're usually very intelligent and can understand when they want things that they shouldn't have and they offload that to other people. Like I don't want to pay taxes ever, but I know I have to. So I hire an accountant. I'm never going to do my taxes. I hate that shit. But I hire the guy because he's just good at what he does. So it's kind of like, uh, I should be doing it. And I think more and more people are coming to this idea of maintenance. It's like, okay, after I failed five diets or succeeded, quote unquote, and then regained all the weight – then they start to sunny up to the maintenance idea. And that's where companies like RP come in where they're like, hey, how many diets you try that sucked? They're like, a lot. Like, you want to try one that doesn't? And they're like, okay. And they try it. And after the diet's over, it's like, hey, what do you think about maintenance? They're like, what the fuck is that? And then we basically, we start to teach folks that like, okay, during the diet, you already learned how to construct really good meals. It's not like the maintenance plan for RP is completely different than the normal diet, which is a huge stomach like something like keto. Like, all right, you lost 15 pounds doing no carbs. Like, all right, how to keep that off? Like, fucking never eat carbs again. Like, what? Right. 
so it's good. Uh, any good plan maintenance sort of starts during the diet itself, during the fat loss diet. And then as you lose the fat, you sort of gain a lot of skills as to how to manage your food. And then there is a slow, calm reintroduction afterwards. And then that's where the last stumbling block that at least in the scope I can talk about comes is after a fat loss diet, you at a very deep evolutionary hormonal level just want to eat a ton of delicious shit and blow the fuck back up. And maintenance is hard to pull off because it's just a difficult thing to do. But I mean even maintenance mid-diet because a lot That's of even harder a, a lot <laughs> of the people who we're talking about, I think the the benefit comes in not just a straight line of yep. like I'm five fifty and I'm gonna go to two hundred without maintenance. I'm saying to me the benefit of doing maintenance in between my fat loss has been astronomically sure. beneficial. Like it's ch it's changed the way I view dieting. Yeah, um, a lot of that is, uh, suffers from the same problems. Of if you tell someone, like, imagine an advertising campaign, like you can lose seventy pounds in in six months. I was like, wow. And then the other ones, like, you can lose seventy pounds in eighteen months. They're like, okay, right. I'm but going with six, right? But you'll keep it off. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people sort of, you know, dieting sucks, and they just want to get through it. And uh, people rush things all the time, and people speed. People get into situations where they want the, the quick and easy. They want to get through. They want to get it over with. And it sucks because there's not a ton of communication on the fact that that's not a great idea. And, you know, I'm always playing the capitalist here, but to play the conscious consumer, it's many companies are sort of a bit unscrupulous and they will not tell you even if they know about the maintenance way to get through diets because they just want to sell you a diet and move on. You know, um, that at the end of the day is, is a thing, but then it goes both ways, right? So like with the RP diet app that we have, there is a maintenance function that's like fucking great. And it automatically slowly brings you back up to food and then you can have tons of free meals and it all tracks everything. But then it kind of looks like we want your money again every month <laughs> selling you this maintenance app. So a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm going to buy the fat loss plan, but then I cancel my plan because I don't want to pay that money. And then they come back again, fat. And they buy another fat loss plan. So RP makes less money because we don't get to contract them all the time on the app. But, you know, what's $15 a month for making sure your goals are achieved permanently? <laughs> you know, fucking, that's a gamble, right? And that sounds like I'm going to do a promo for the app, but like app, no app, whatever. Well, I, I mean, there's a good point in there too. And I will say for me, uh, starting fat loss, any fat loss phase for me takes a lot of effort in the beginning. Once you have figured out what you're doing after you've done until the calories change again it it becomes like uh, i understand what i'm sure. eating and i'm not saying i i stop measuring stuff but i have to stop triple checking measurements sure, or whatever it is it becomes much easier much in the same way i found maintenance you you start off thinking about it okay Here's a new block mm -hmm. of, of, of macros or calories or whatever portions. I found that after, and I did maintenance this last time for three months, by the time I got to the end, I wasn't thinking at all. I was just eating within maintenance. How was your hunger and stuff like that? Non-existent. That's amazing. How, yeah. How much weight did you gain during that time? I gained five pounds, but, you know, I went from a cut and that five pounds could have just been glycogen. It's almost oh, certainly glycogen. Water. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and I'm saying five pounds over three months eating amounts of food that I was like, I'm going to get fat. Right. Yeah. 
it's a it's a tough situation with maintenance. Um, a lot of times, people sort of themselves they haven't been exposed to that idea before. They don't. They want to believe that once you do a fat loss diet, it just fixes the problem. Right. And the reality is, especially from someone who started at, for example, your body weight, if you just eat how you feel, period, you will inevitably trend back up to the same weight or close. So if you've ever been super, super heavy and or if you want to be considerably lighter than you've been most of your life, you're going to always have to be a little bit attentive. But the thing is, the little bit attentive is fucking easy after you've done it for a while and it barely takes anything. It's like, I just make sure to walk my two dogs uh, once a day and I eat like whatever the fuck I want, like most days of the week. But on a couple days of the week, I'll really just like limit myself a little bit and eat mostly like clean foods and I work out. And for 99% of people, that's all they have to do to make sure they don't balloon up to their old weight. Like ballooning up is hard and it requires quitting everything and just eating pizza and Doritos and shit like yeah. that. But uh, a lot of people think, and of course the market reinforces this because with what you want is what the market reflects. They think diets are one-stop solutions and the market's like, yes, we have a diet that's a one-stop solution. And they don't understand that once you lose those two parts to every diet, losing the weight and then maintaining. And then the whole part about multiple successive cuts and maintenance phases in between, that's mostly a patient's problem. And it's, uh, right. you know, we do market at RP to some extent and we're trying to experiment with more of that at RP, but a lot of times, man, people just really, people are impatient and yeah. people want it all now and they want a one-stop solution. And eventually, pharmacology, it's my full belief that pharmacology at a deep level, including genetic engineering, will fix all those problems. Right. But it hasn't yet. And, you know, it may not for 20 years. And then for the next 20 years, we've got to try to stay as healthy as possible. And one of those ways is to make sure we properly contextualize dieting, not as a one-time fix-all thing that I'm just going to do this diet, then we're going to be better. Um, and people expect all kinds of things from diets that just aren't true. You know, people expect to be happier at the end of a diet and it's maybe true some of the time. It's yeah. not true all the time. For me, it has, it has kind of changed my life. The way I, the way I view fat loss maintenance, uh, and then fat loss again. And the idea of linear dieting and all, all of this, it really has changed my life because it's made it much easier yeah. for me. And I'm not walking around fatigued all the time and, and stressed out from eons of dieting. My question is, physiologically, is there a benefit to sell people on for massive weight loss mid-diet? Like, does anything happen to you? Is there a reset period? I know there's a reset period with some hormones, but is there a way to, like... I remember reading at one point, like whatever weight you are at some age, that's the weight that your body goes, this is our weight. This is our baseline. Does any, does anything like that get affected by doing maintenance? That's a little bit more of a statistical artifact, but, um, it absolutely does. And one of the biggest things is hormones and particularly hunger hormones and, uh, hormones and other neural processes that regulate your daily activity. So if you diet super, super hard, your hormones that regulate hunger get a little crazy and you get super hungry all the time. And then your various body processes that regulate activity, what we call non-exercise activity thermogenesis, like just uh, how like jumpy and spunky you are. And like your wife's like, hey, can you walk the dog? And you either say, no, thanks. Or you're like, yeah, totally. And you do like 10 miles for no goddamn reason. Poor fucking dog is tired. <laughs> um, that kind of stuff gets altered at the end of a diet. And the longer you go, the longer, the more harshly it gets altered. And that sort of sets you up for a rebound. Maintenance is an ability to understand that that rebound is set up, but stopping 
60% short of that massive rebound and just doing maintenance. And then over the course of several months, most of that, not all of it, most of it gets washed away. Your body's like, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm starving. I'm starving. And then three weeks into maintenance, it's like, I guess I'm not starving. And then three months into maintenance, it's like, I guess maybe I've always been pretty close to this weight. And it just sort of forgets. And then you have another, you've bought yourself another three or four months of fat loss dieting. And at the end of that three or four months, your body's like, ah, fuck, we're dying. Turn up the hormones and turn up the hunger, turn down the activity. Three or four months of maintenance later, it's like, huh. Uh, I guess I'm not dying. Everything's fine. And then cycles like that continue and eventually you can lose a lot of weight. If you go from, you know, 550 to 250 or something, there will always be an ability to balloon back up. And you know, that's just the thing you know. And it's true. It's been vetted by research. But if you go there and you establish good dietary habits, first of all, at the end, and also if you get there through maintenance phases, uh, then at the end, someone can ask you like, oh man, it must be really hard to keep all that weight off. And your honest to goodness answer is going to be like, it's just really not that hard. Like what I have to do is eat mostly clean food. And then I've got a couple meals a week with my family where I just eat like fucking pizza and tacos and fuck all. And I lift fucking hard and I'm fairly active and it just, the weight just doesn't go up. It just stays where it is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And a, 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 that's a huge, like a golden zone at the end of the rainbow. It's awesome. But at the same time, people have to know about it to realize that the the battle the battle is never over over i get, put this in i was thinking these stupid fucking terms um maybe put it in stupid movie terms earth gets in contact with fucking mega military aliens like and they fucking attack and there's this rush to build up our military and space forces and it's just to the fucking nick of time like we barely defeat them right and then, like, so what do you do after that? And a lot of people, like, like the, the, the way maybe some of Hollywood would portray that is, you know, the last five minutes closing scene, it would be, like, like the guy who, like, changed his whole life. Like, he wanted to be a civil engineer, but he became a military engineer because of the alien psycho wars of 2059. He's like, finally, I can go be with my family. And we don't, none of us have to fight. And the soldier drops his helmet. My version of that on the fat loss side, but pick that fucking helmet up. You're in the reserves. Because okay? other aliens could be coming back. And you right. feel and maybe they're not all dead. So let's not dismantle our space force. Let's shortly, really significantly reduce it, but have advanced research projects going, make sure we still have our spacecraft in orbit, have some <laughs> radar. You know what I mean? Just because we know that sometimes the shit can get crazy again. And maybe now we realize we're in a universe where there's occasionally aliens attack. There's almost never these huge psycho aliens, but every now and again, some intruders and we need to fucking tell them to fuck off. So after you've been stunned like that, don't the reality is you're never going back to your world of like oh mommy do you think there's aliens in the stars like yeah and they have guns so it's one of those things where after you lose a ton of fat you're always going to have to have those alien ships in reserve you're always going to have to fundamentally eat well fundamentally continue to exercise and stay relatively active and yes every several weeks at least take a look at the scale and make sure you're good and it's as easy as looking at the scale be like oh i gained five pounds i'm gonna cool it on the taco bell this week and uh, just eat a little cleaner i'm not even talking about restricting your intake just eat more healthy food because there's only so much fucking healthy food you can eat and then two weeks later you look at the scale like back down six pounds we're golden next couple weeks you just sort of live it up and not like this like huge pendulum of like i lost these six pounds pizza hut like just live your normal life again and you're totally good to go and that's called living in a balance and that's really good and it's just never you never do decommission your space program altogether you never do think like i lost 300 pounds like i can just go back to eating the same shit that got me there well no fucking shit if you do that you're gonna be like we've beat the aliens all right turn off the deep space radar like well how the fuck do we know if they're coming back like ah, we won right like 
victory is never, never completely uh, permanent. Right. This is my kind of my viewpoint on uh, what seems to be new or trending right now, intuitive eating. I thought you were going to say the alien wars. Yeah, the alien wars are also <laughs> – I mean that's coming for sure. For sure. That's on its way. You and I are ready. We're yeah, ready to be space I'm ready. Marines. I can't mm. wait. I, I want I've, all the probing. 100%. I'm giving – I'm surrendering right away. You're like yeah. everyone's ready to get a gun to shoot the aliens. You're I'm running like, naked here, to the please, aliens. Please, like, hey, guys. Yes, I cannot wait. Um, but the, the idea of – and I haven't read the book or I haven't read the, the, the data or literature or whatever it is that they're saying, here's how you should eat. And it's just how your body feels or whatever it is. For me, I read Tim Ferriss's book and I was like, oh, a cheat day. I will crush a cheat day. And I was consistently wiping out my whole week of clean eating with yep. one cheat day. And, yep. and I think it started off with two cheat days maybe. And then it was like, well, this is getting – I'm gaining weight with this. Let me just do one. And I was still gaining weight. You didn't read the fine print. It was a weight gain plan. No. And so I've damaged all of my whatever uh, – I think of people as normal people and I hate to ever hang that category on someone. But like as a – Sober person, I think of anyone who's not an addict as a normal person. This is just how I consider them. If you can have alcohol and it's not going to ruin your life, you're a normal person. Sure. If you can smoke a little pot and it's not going to ruin your life, you're a normal person. So I'm sorry. That's what I'm going to call you. Um, I don't think of it as an insult, but I, some people say oh, if I'm someone not tells you a normal person is an insult, then they're they're they got a lot of issues with alcohol, <laughs> yeah, which is totally cool. But we have some less of issues, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, so when I think of normal people and with regard to food and eating, uh, it's a person who eats and then whatever signals their body tells them they don't need to eat anymore, they stop eating and that's that. And, and then they stay at a healthy weight right. just because of that. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and they're not you know, kind of getting off on the euphoria of overfeeding, which is a real thing. You know, the idea of – And some of them even do get off on that. But then compensatorily, their hunger shuts down after that to where they're like, uh, and they don't eat for like a day and a half. Right. Like I, I've done that before where I went on a cruise after a bodybuilding show and um, ate a lot and gained a ton of weight and it was fun. Yeah. The day I got back, because the food isn't hyper palatable anymore when you're on a cruise, the cruise food's delicious. Yeah. Um, I got back. I remember eating. I ate exactly 1,000 calories exclusively in protein shakes. Because I couldn't eat. I looked at food. I was like, <laughs> nah. so right. there's the compensatory mechanism, but not that people who used to weigh a lot don't really have anymore nearly to that extent. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't tried myself with that stuff in a long time, but, uh, you know, a couple of years, but I had all like, none of that exists in me today. It's an analytical process sure. every day that I eat. There is some analytical effort put into what I mean. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to be? Like, I don't. I don't ever foresee that going away. And if it does, it's going to be because I've thrown in the towel or I've I've suffering depression and I've given up. So that's possible, unlikely, but possible. Your doctor's like you're depressed. Cheeseburgers are our only hope. Yeah, that's it. And you won't feel better. You're going to feel worse. You're going to feel cheesier. Yeah, but you want you know when that desire to self-harm or whatever it is that comes with addiction, um, I'm just fighting those things off because that's my version sure. of innate eating or whatever, intuitive, intuitive eating. eating. So the thing about intuitive eating is that uh, it is an incredibly powerful tool in a, a, 
a wide variety of contexts, but they're specific contexts and it's not a universal thing. So intuitive eating is actually very, very precisely defined as a bunch of stuff other than just eating how you feel. Right. One of the elements of intuitive eating, and there's a lot of intersection with other concepts like mindful eating, for example, where you eat food and you ask yourself, am I physiologically still hungry or am I just doing this on just like, cause I just keep going. Right. And if you're not hungry anymore and you're still eating, you go, should I really be doing this? And you might think to yourself, I, I don't feel like eating anymore. And then you stop. So intuitive eating isn't exactly honoring all of your desires 100% without question, sure. but it is definitely admitting your desires to yourself. So if you look at a brownie and you're like, I want the brownie, and you think to yourself, do I really want it? You're like, yes. I'm like, then I want the brownie. Then it's a choice whether or not to eat it. But intuitive eating, one of its huge benefits is to take people away from a ton of food stigma and put them into a more rational space of like, you have to just acknowledge how you feel about stuff. And it's okay. That doesn't mean you have to do it, but also you can do it. It's not a big deal. Obesity is not created overnight. You're not going to fall off the wagon in one day and just destroy your life. With drug addiction, absolutely that's possible. With food, that's just not a thing. Food's not addictive in the conventional sense like drugs. It's been studied a bunch. It's just not true. So you, it's a habit thing and it's a thing you can do and then do a little worse and do a little better. And a brownie here and there is just straight up not going to kill you. Uh, a lot of folks, specifically people who aren't actually overweight but have dealt with some disordered eating patterns in the past, for them intuitive eating and other related concepts are a huge benefit because they've been psychotically overanalyzing their diet for as long as they can remember. And when they just, they think what's going to happen is if they just honor their desires and eat a bit more of the good stuff they want, what they think is going to happen is just going to balloon to 900 fucking pounds because they have a disordered eating pattern. The reality is they weigh 140 pounds and they look fucking great. And then they finally had enough of like, in the psychosis and they start to get into intuitive eating. Maybe they get a therapist, a registered dietitian, and they start to do this intuitive eating stuff. And then they end up a couple of months later at 145 pounds with not a fucking smidge of psychosis in sight. It's just normal fucking people, like you say, but they weigh 145. Fuck 145, you fat bitch, how dare you? You know, all your <laughs> friends notice they break up with you like, you know, Amanda, since you went to 145, I can't be seen. What? Yeah. And, then, and then they start training and doing exercise. And sometimes they don't even feel like eating like nacho cheese it Cheetos or whatever. And all of a sudden, because they start training, walking their dogs a little more, now they weigh 138. But with essentially just a, just a hint of that crazy psychosis they used to have about food. For folks like that, intuitive eating is a wonderful, wonderful thing. For folks such as yourself who have been super heavy before – Elements of it are beautiful and needle. Like, there's no reason for you to ever be anxious about food. Like, physically, there's no fucking reason for it. And every bit of anxiety you feel is time away in your life. Like, fucking, you die. God's going to open up the scroll and be like, I see you spent 90 years straight being anxious. And you're like, fuck, you're right. Like, you ain't getting that shit back. So, all that's for nothing. And it's not even effective. That's the thing is being super anxious and overly analytical about food and being like, brownies are bad. I'm a good person. I eat peaches. Peaches are good. That shit is all a fucking waste of time. And a lot of times it hurts you more than it helps. But because you've been much heavier before in the past, what you can do is honor your desires and be like, yeah, I do want to fucking eat cheeseburgers. And calmly say, yes. And that's okay. And it's actually okay for me to eat cheeseburgers. Now, now that the, the this waves have come off like, cheeseburgers wave and then it dies down and then cheeseburgers and then it dies down. Now you're looking at it. There's no more waves. You're like, okay, now what is a good idea for me to eat given that I have certain physique goals and I'm in charge of myself and not just my hormones? You're like, okay, 
um, today cheeseburgers because uh, I have actually a fucking meal coming up where I can eat whatever fuck I want. Sweet, check. Eat cheeseburgers it is. Or if it's a day where like Jared Feather says you have a photo shoot coming up in a month and a half, cheeseburgers are just not on the menu. And you rationally, calmly, not from a perspective of fear, like, oh, no, cheeseburgers are evil. And you run away from them. You trip. It's not that. You're like, hello, cheeseburgers. And they're like, hey, what's up? Don't get that much. And then you go just eat your healthy food. Right. Like if you interact with food like that, it's all victory and none of the loss. If you start to make food a moral dynamic, gee whiz, you know, uh, is it effective to keep you away from the bad food? Yes. In a short term, it can be. And it's powerful. It's like hating the shape that you're in and using that to fuel your workouts. Right. But that's not the way to be sustainable. And you look back and you're like, I got in great shape and I hated myself. Yeah. I guess I still do. The best way to do it is to be a little bit less emotive about it and a little bit more of seeing the bright side. Like, what is a good idea for me to do? Yeah. I like these things I shouldn't be eating right now because they're just not a part of my plan and I want to succeed. So I'm going to honor the fact that I like them and I'm going to choose to eat some stuff that I'm supposed to be anyway. You eat that stuff and you build this momentum of just fucking doing the right thing, not, not doing the wrong thing. I mean, can you imagine living your life entirely on a moralistic, like, trail away from the bad like i sit down to do my work every day i'm like there's no way i'm not not working today i gotta get away from this not work what the fuck like can you just land it let's say you have like you know you're a single guy and you've like you know uh you're you land in vegas you're like oh, i shouldn't be having sex with hookers okay i'm just gonna go on regular dates like <laughs> if that's the first thing you tell yourself it's cool you just have some tough work you have to be doing right D to caricature that as normal to other people is illusory. That's just not the case. No, but I think I think it can be used in the direction of getting somewhere good. Totally. So like there was a there there were many points in my time sure. where I had to moralize food. Sure. I As don't start, do it at that's all. That's totally fine. Yeah, but yeah. it it was it was it has been helpful at points, sure. but then it's not sustainable. You can't do it forever because sure. you fail at some point. Well, so if you moralize food at the beginning, that's probably fine for most people, not all, because some people it backfires. Right. For a lot of people, it totally works, but then you catch some momentum of just doing the right thing. So instead of like you sitting at home, be like, I'm not going to fuck hookers. I'm not going to fuck hookers. What you do is you sit at home and you spend time with the people you love and someone's like, hey, you want to go fuck hookers? And you're like, I, not really. I just like doing the stuff I'm doing. Right. Like, so once you've got diet momentum and you're doing the right thing, you're making the right good choices all the time, you don't have to moralize food as much. If you intend on continuing to moralize food, that can be problematic for you in the sense that it's just not sustainable. And it sucks. It's like a two. It's somebody could look back at the like ten years. You're like, oh, you've been lean for ten years. How did it feel? You're like, awful. I was just like trying to think about not eating great food all the time. And they're like, okay, now what are you going to do? You're like, now I'm going to eat whatever the fuck I want and get huge because it was never sustainable. I don't know how I lasted ten years. Like, fuck that. Like, yeah, if you need to moralize a little bit to get started, okay, fine. Like, but then you should transition to into more of a positive outlook. Focus on what you're doing that's right, not when you're not doing that's wrong. And if you're doing a lot of right shit, there's physically only so much time in the day. And when you're, all your meals are good stuff, by definition, you can't be eating bad stuff. You right. just take the good stuff. And then this is what I feel like maintenance has given me. It's like a, it's like a yeah. gift because prior to actually doing a real maintenance period, there's so much chatter in the universe of dieting. Of and there's so much to go like, I heard this is bad. I heard that is bad. And I'm unsure of what... I can even eat or not eat because, you know, beets are bad or whatever it is. Well, we so, all know that. Yeah. I mean, who eats beets? They're red. They're like yeah. blood colored. Right. It's awful. Um, but you get into maintenance and it's like designed to show you 
what meals are like yes. that don't that you don't gain weight on. It is the path of doing correct things, doing correct things, not trying to avoid incorrect things. It, it's like an actual. It, it's the difference between like. Here's another stupid analogy. Getting into a war zone with a skill set of how to fucking shoot people and survive versus getting into a war zone completely with no skills and be like, just don't step on mines. Like, where the fuck are they? Like, I don't know. That's why they're mines, motherfucker. They're hidden. (laughs) So it's kind of like a maintenance phase is teaching you how to live in the absence of a fat loss diet plan and establishing awesome eating habits that just are, are the right thing you should be doing. And you feel so liberated by it because- it's, uh, it would be ideal if we could all just free live our way and it would be awesome. And I think that day is coming at some point with, with deep pharmacology. But for now, yeah, like the post-diet thing, the regain is planned. It's a thing your body wants to do. And if you have just all this, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, you know that, but then right. you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. So like you said before, like am I just on an 1800 calorie diet now? Maybe because people say like there used to be like this is something that uh, Melissa Davis who – one of the maintenance experts at RP. She's an expert in a lot of stuff. She's actually a neuroscientist. Brilliant person. Have you ever had her on your podcast no, or whatever? I'd love to. It, it, that would be sweet. She's yeah. fucking sweet. So one of the things is it pisses her off to no extent. Uh, she's a uh, world champ and black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So her pissed off is, an, is a liability for the rest of us. Right. Our audio guys over here got bad faces and terrible <laughs> memories. So here's the thing that she always uh, gets pissed off about. Uh, people say fat loss lifestyle. What the fuck does that mean? Right. How long can you lose fat for? That's not a lifestyle. That's a dedicated phase. Yeah. And almost every diet they sell as a lifestyle is really a fat loss diet that is not incompatible. What do you talking about the keto lifestyle? Really? Keto lifestyle. I'm not going to eat carbs for life. The fuck out of my face. Well, I went through that and I yeah, really, here. I, I believed this is how I now eat forever. And, yeah. and was I, it sustainable? It mostly wasn't sustainable because I wasn't getting abs. Yeah, sure. Mike, you know what I mean? Like, so I can, it just wasn't even effective. Yeah. I, by the way, I can suffer forever. Sure. I suffered as a fat person. Everything hurt. I was uncomfortable. I was socially uncomfortable. I thought I was going to break every chair I sat in. I know how to suffer. That's suffering just as much as you put me on a bicycle. I'll ride it for 120 miles. So you're good at suffering. I'm good at suffering. But and, and the keto thing just didn't give you the results you wanted. That's That's it. And and so, but let's say it did. We're just going to keep ketoing forever. Well, and that's the problem with any of this. I believe that a lifestyle. If you're 500 pounds or whatever, and you have to change, your lifestyle likely needs to change. But the diet should be a temp. Like the fat loss portion should be a temporary thing, and it should give you tools. Tools should be built into it. For how your life is going to, to be to weave afterwards. you back into normal, normal-ish life, right? And going through a diet is a, is a physiological shock, so you're never going to be 100 percent after that. But that's okay because you're human and you're not fragile, and you can handle way more than not being 100 percent okay. But what we don't want is to continue that war zone mentality. Of like, it's like um, people that go through a crazy war and then they just go to society and they're like, but just live normally. And they're like, what the fuck? Like, I'm like breaking at things that aren't, you know, stoplights because I think there's I, you know, IEDs and crazy shit like that. There needs to be programs in place to weave people like that back into life. And there are great programs like that. And, you know, will, will people that lead those programs will they ever say, you know, you're going to be a hundred percent and just no PTSD whatsoever. They usually don't say that. They're like, yeah, you're going to, shit's going to come up in your head from some shit because you've seen some shit. Yeah. But eventually it's going to be to a level where it's just going to be like one of these like, 
jaded memories that makes us all humans instead of this paralyzing thing that fucks up your life. So if you've died at a lot of weight off, are you ever going to be like just, you know, those fucking asshole skinny people that just eat whatever the fuck they want? Yes. It's, it's a fucking like model bitch. It's like, Normal I just love you, Claire's a right. bitch. I swear to God. Right. Fuck them. Well, you're never going to be one of those people, but you're going to be damn close. And so much so that the burden of responsibility on yourself to manage your food intake and your activity is going to be so minor. It's going to be something you're so good at, so well-practiced and you love so much. It's just going to be a non-issue. Right. I love it. Mike, thank you so much. My pleasure. And now for the Q&A. Nick G writes, been up and down in weight throughout the years, finally broke through mentally to keep my weight down and maintain it. How did you slash do you deal with any type of body dysmorphia? Thanks, an awesome podcast. Thanks for the question, Nick. I I suppose I have some version of this for sure. I I start almost every day looking at the mirror in total disappointment of myself, and I do not let myself leave the mirror until I've found at least something to not be disgusted by. And and usually I try to get it all the way over to somewhat satisfied with myself. But yeah, this is certainly something I deal with. And and I don't believe that I'm ever going to look exactly the way I want or, you know, be super thrilled with myself. But I can eventually, through finding small things to not be bummed out about, I can eventually get to the point where... I, I am not repulsed by my image, if that makes sense. Thanks for the question, Nick. If you have a question you would like me to answer on the show, you can submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 